From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. Video production has always been an industry that required a lot of expensive processes and equipment. If you wanted to produce video for a project, you had to hire a production agency. They'd bring all the equipment and staff to get it done, and it always came with an expensive price tag. However, in recent years, the game has changed. More and more people have access to high-quality equipment thanks to the rise of digital SLR and mirrorless cameras. In fact, chances are you likely have a pretty amazing camera sitting right in your pocket, on your smartphone. We've all seen the rise of social media sites, which has required an investment in video for businesses that want to stay relevant, leaving companies with a problem. How do you increase video output without having to pay significantly more for the privilege? Today on the show, we're speaking with Mike Pritchett, the CEO and co-founder of Shootster, a company that set out to solve that very problem. Shootster empowers companies to film their own video content, and then they handle all the post-production elements to make it look great. So Qantas, for example, we've trained over 130 staff there to shoot great quality content. Once it's shot, it gets uploaded to our cloud-based system called The Hub, where our editors download that footage, get working on it immediately, and have a professional video back to the client within 24 hours. Mike grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, and from an early age remembers always wanting to be involved with video. Something fascinated him about creating content and telling interesting stories. I have been in love with video uh, all of my life. Somebody asked me in an interview the other day how I found myself in the video world. I've, I've never not been in the video world. I'm that annoying kid that ran around with a camera uh, filming all of his friends at every moment and making annoying videos out of them, uh, which funnily enough they thank me for very much now uh, when they can look back at hilarious videos. But at the time, very much the annoying kid, passionate about content, passionate about storytelling. We had some very wealthy neighbours next door that uh, had a big old DigiBeta camera and I, I fell in love with that the second he would, had it straddled over his shoulder like some kind of uh, news reporter running around when we were only kids riding our bikes around at probably, I don't know, five or six years old. And so I saw that and instantly wanted a piece of it. Once I started to see the footage that came out the other side, I, I was borrowing that at any moment possible to create content. What sort of stuff were you making? What was it? What was the go-to for you as a as you know a, a kid of like you know six or eight or whatever? Oh, I definitely you know pretty much I founded Red Bull Extreme Videos with our uh, huge curb jumps <laughs> off BMXs uh, in the eighties. That was uh, <laughs> very very poor uh, adrenaline sports videos that I thought were us doing really huge jumps off dirt mounds on BMX bikes were probably us doing very small, embarrassing uh, bumps off uh, dirt mounds. So a lot of those kind of videos, I was really trying to stitch together fun, action-packed videos. We had a um, a drain at the top of one of the hills near us. We lived right on the bush, and we had this big strip of grass. And right at the top of the hill, this drain used to overflow, and we used to get our bodyboards out and, and run and jump on this flow of water and ride it all the way down and then jump off this section at the bottom. And we have some really hilarious videos of us doing that back in the day. So you were you were just like constantly creating and, and trying 
trying sort of new ideas. Yeah, definitely. And and storytelling as well. We, we gathered our friends together and tried to make a short film when we were very young. Um, it was actually called Dreamers Live, Livers Die, um, which isn't even correct <laughs> English. So that was well played. Uh, the, the 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 concept for me as a young as a young individual at least was that those who dream will go on to live, and those that live in the now and the present and worry about everything they die. So. That was a very weird, twisted sort of theme, but basically this guy who had a lot of dreams in life went on to achieve them, and the other one that just said, no, no, this is reality and, and was very negative, didn't go on to achieve anything. So that was my thinking as a young kid, and we turned it into a short film. Once again, no doubt very embarrassing, so no, you can't find it anywhere online, and if you can, I'll take it down. Mike's dad was a builder, and he ran his own business, and his mum helped him with that and then looked after Mike and his three brothers. He says it was a family that loved the outdoors and had some creative streaks. His dad sometimes got to work on building stage props, and his brothers were also interested in the creative fields. And when he was around 12, Mike was able to acquire his first video camera, a Sony Video 8. Uh, I still remember, for some reason to this day, my brother had a camera, a uh, little Video 8 camera, and it was it had slow-mo, and mine didn't have slow-mo because I bought the model a couple down from his, but it had the empty button where you could access slow-mo. And the day that I discovered that his remote control actually worked my camera and I could shoot a higher frame rate on my camera to produce slow-mo videos was just groundbreaking for me. I realised the the functionality was still there inside this Sony camera that just blocked the button. So that was my first little uh, hack to get to a, a better camera without spending the money. Some people say that being an entrepreneur is in your blood, that you're born to do your own thing, to chart your own course. And if there was anyone who's the definition of that, it's Mike. He says that he was always coming up with business plans and ways to potentially make some cash. I was on a a trip just recently, actually, a fantastic trip in Canada, backcountry snowboarding with 48 entrepreneurs. And uh, and one of the people on that, that trip just kept going around asking everyone, just give me a number. When was the first time you knew you were an entrepreneur? And I told him my number and he laughed and moved on. I said, hang on, what's everyone's number? And he said, no one here has said anything above 12. And it really hit me. I was like, yeah, you kind of and I find it funny when I see university courses on how to become an entrepreneur. I don't think you become an entrepreneur. I think you are or you're not. And for me, I've always been an entrepreneur. It's been a passion for me to be an entrepreneur. And and I have nothing against working in a job. And obviously, I have a lot of people working now with Shootster. But for me personally, I could never handle working in a job. I just I just couldn't do it. It wasn't physically in my in my uh, makeup to be able to do that. So, what was your number? Uh, my number was 11. So I first knew I was an entrepreneur at 11. I uh, One of my first stories of, I suppose, starting my own business and what I would classify as my first enterprise, if you will, was a friend at school when I was in year, year six, I think it was. He came to me and said, would you like to buy this uh, worm farm? And I said, why on earth would I want to buy a worm farm? And he said, oh, they're great. They're great. You can put all your, your, your scraps and compost in there and these worms just grow and you get thousands of worms. And I said, yeah, but why would I want worms? He said, you put them in the garden. They're great for the garden. I said, 
I don't care about gardening. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Moved on to the next kid at school and tried to sell to him. And uh, and then I went to a nursery that weekend with my mum and I'm walking around bored, waiting while for her to buy some pot plants. And I see these worms at the front counter in takeaway containers, little little round Chinese takeaway containers. And I said, you're selling those for $5? And the guy behind the counter said, yeah. And I said, out of curiosity, how much do you buy them for? And he said, oh, we buy them for $2 from a guy down the road that sells them to us. And I said, do you ever have supply issues or need another supplier of those? And he's like, yeah, sure. We can sell as many as we can get in. So if, you, if you've got some, sell them to us. And the light bulb went on and I was ecstatic running around <laughs> trying to do the maths in my head on how, how I was going to spend all of my riches. <laughs> and so I, I took my first venture capital loan from my dad, uh, which was $100, and uh, I bought this, um, this worm farm, which you put together yourself. I put it down in the back shed and every night I was passionately putting the compost in there and throwing my own food in there even though I wasn't finished and, uh, and started creating worms, if you will, and selling them to the local nursery. And uh, look, I don't think I ever actually paid the $100 back or made a profit, but <laughs> it was certainly a lot of fun. The worm business wasn't quite what it stacked up to be, but that didn't stop Mike coming up with new business plans. He says right through school, he was always trying something new. Sometimes they pan out and other times he ran into problems. I, I did all sorts of things through school. I remember in year 11 when uh, most people were saying oh, they'd sell their car to buy a new one. Well, I tried to raffle mine off, of course, ran into all sorts of legal issues there that I pushed through. But it was such a crappy car, I didn't really want to sell it to anyone. But my theory was if somebody only paid $5 for the car, they probably wouldn't care that it's crappy. And I realised I could make a lot more money right. doing it that way. How many people were did you get to like sign up for raffle tickets? Well, I, I had to sh- I had to shut it down. I, I had two hundred and fifty people that were interested in buying five dollar raffle tickets and were ready to go, but I had to shut it down um, because it was uh, it was the school found out and they were not really obliging to my illegal escapades. <laughs> so that one got shut down, unfortunately, uh, before it got off the ground. Uh, the other was uh, the discovery of the fact that. Our school, ridiculously so, because on health levels this is absurd, but back then they got away with it, was actually the largest um, seller of Coke in the Southern Hemisphere. Coca-Cola, I'm talking, not the drug. And they they were selling Coca-Cola left, right and centre through the canteen for a dollar a can. Uh, I realised on my way to school that, you know, Coles sells it in a 24-pack for 66 cents a can. And I saw a profit uh, opportunity. So for me, I went and found a, a fridge by the side of the road, a council cleanup, put it into the our years area at the school and put an honesty box in for 80 cents per can of Coke. And uh, I thought, this is going to be a ripper. I'm going to make so much money out of this again. And <laughs> I just did the honesty box on the first sure. day I came back and every single can of Coke was gone and not one person had paid for it. So that was that was thrilling. But the fun thing was I thought, no, I'm going to push on. I'm going to push on. I'm going to trust people and see what happens. So the next day I put another 30 cans of Coke and um, everyone paid for their Coke and everybody paid from the day before bar one, who still hasn't paid me. He owes me 80 cents. I know who you are. And, uh, and that, was, that was a real lesson for me that if you push on with this and you trust the system and the honesty of people, then you know, not all the time, but for sometimes, and in that case, it worked out. And for the rest of the time until the end of year 12, I sold, I sold probably 60, 60 cans or so a day out of our fridge with no, no work except for going and picking it up in the morning and, uh, and putting it in the fridge. So that paid for petrol. 
Mike was an entrepreneur. That's what he wanted to be in life. And when he finished school, he knew that going to college and getting a degree just wasn't for him. So against protests from his mother, who had visions of him studying at the University of Sydney, he left school and decided to make it on his own. Uh, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest. My first plan was to uh, run to Europe and do a gap year like most Australians. So I, I ran around and, uh, and had a lot of fun for a year in Europe and the UK and worked and did di- different bits and pieces over there and a bit of Canada and touched up on my snowboarding skills and then back into the real world. And I've had every job you could possibly imagine. I've cleaned toilets at, at uh, Macquarie University, which was good fun. I've done everything from... Uh, one the weirdest job I ever had was an olfactometrist, believe it or not, which is a very weird term, but basically means you smell things for a living. Okay, explain. Uh, an olfactometrist is a uh, is somebody that smells th- smells things for a living, and I basically signed up for this job, and they said, okay, so you have to sit in this air conditioned, you know, um, specially calibrated room for an hour, and then you walk into this room and you smell something, and you you press a button when you can smell it. And then you walk back into the room for another hour. I was like, what do I have to do in the room? Whatever you want. I was like, well, I could start my own business while sitting in that room. I could do anything. So I took this job and found out later we were, we were smelling to check for the waterboard, mind you, uh, to check how much uh, chemical they could put in the water before they got away with it. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, wow. that's a thing. But I think my biggest thing was I I wanted to make sure I always had time to work on my own thing, whatever that thing was going to be. I, I'm I'm not. I wish I was. In in hindsight, I probably would have gone to a uh, I don't know a, a, to business school and worked with a group of very intelligent people to come up with a great idea and start working on it and get funding and do that all a lot earlier. But to be honest, the startup world didn't exist. Not in the way it does today. That's for sure. Not and definitely not in Sydney. Maybe it did in Silicon Valley, but. For me now, there are so many opportunities for young people to come through and jump into incubators and jump into all these different programs and learn ideas and strategize with other people and come together with like-minded people, get funding, et cetera, et cetera. For me, it was a it was very much a course of finding anything I could latch onto. I even jumped into Amway. That was great. Uh, so five five years of plugging away, trying to see what I could do on the side of work uh, with Amway, which, to be honest, was actually fantastic sales training and taught me a lot about the business world that I'm not encouraging people jump in and start knocking on people's door and doing Amway. But the learning I got from that on a sales level was huge. What was the biggest thing about sales that you learned from doing Amway? It's literally bizarre. You, you, you're, you're in a position where you're trying to meet somebody on a train in the morning on the way to work totally derail their course of life and where they're headed and what they do and undermine what they do for a living and turn them around to a position where they have you in their house sitting down talking with their wife and and kids or husband and kids and um, discussing a new course for their entire life to jump on board with this idea of doing Amway. The fact that anyone gets anyone to join Amway is fascinating, Uh, but to do it with complete strangers is such an art and to learn that in the years where I was in my I'll call them formative years if you will where I was learning these skills of people skills and um, storytelling and and sales training was was fantastic for me those sales skills would become useful down the line and right after this break Mike begins his career in video
Mike Pritchett knew that he wanted to do something creative with his life, but spending time selling products for Amway just wasn't going to cut it. So he applied for a sales job with a company called Key Media. The thing we were selling was sponsorship to events. And these were industry events, legal events, awards and, and mortgage awards, et cetera, et cetera. And these awards events, the, the um, turnout had been dropping and we had to work out how to bring the turn up. Up, And I sat down with the founder and the CEO and we're sitting there in this room discussing how can we get more people to these events. And I just said, look, crazy idea. Have you thought of using video? And, uh, and he's like, what do you mean using video? And I said, well, okay, take, take mortgage professionals, for example, right? We're doing awards for mortgage professionals. Every mortgage broker has an ego, wants to see themselves on the big screen. What if we went, and it was just a throw out idea around a boardroom table that I just thought was a bit of a laugh. And to be honest, a bit of an excuse for me to stop being on the phone. And I said, what if we could get mortgage professionals that are finalists in these awards to appear on camera? And we say, we'll show the video on a big screen at the night. Would that get people to come along to see themselves on the, on the big screen? He said, well, how would you do it? Sounds a bit boring. And I said, well, what if we themed the nights? And so we played around with the idea and said, okay, what if the next awards night was James Bond theme? And I, I call up the, the finalists, of which there's quite a few for each award, and I say, look, we're, we're filming this trailer. It's going to be a big trailer at the start of the night. You have to be either James Bond or a Bond girl uh, doing whatever it is that you want to do. And it was incredible, the result that it had. Right, so it, it did encourage people to actually turn up. I had a lot of fun with it. I uh, called up the um, finalists and I said, okay, we're, we're doing this trailer. You need to go as over the top as you possibly can. And I just started making things up. I said, one of the other guys has a hovercraft. So think about how high level you can go. And, he, and somebody went, oh, my friend's got a hovercraft. I was like, oh, great. So suddenly now what I was saying was true. So that was great. So he stepped up. He borrowed a hovercraft. Now I could actually legitimately say, one of the guys has a hovercraft. So one of the other guys goes, my friend's got an Aston Martin. So I'll borrow that. Okay, well, we've got an Aston Martin and a hovercraft. So I started throwing things out like, what about a helicopter? Do you have a helicopter? What can we do? And and we we went ridiculous with this. And I thought it would just be in Sydney a bit of fun. We uh, I'm pretty sure we almost doubled the the attendance at this event because not only did people say I want to come and watch my video they went I'm going to buy a table of 10 take my entire team and some of my family to come and see me on the big screen on a, on a hovercraft in a James Bond trailer and it was a fantastic for that company uh, it was fantastic for me as well because the CEO who's, a, who's now a good friend of mine and, and been a bit of a mentor to me he actually said go do this everywhere around the world. We've got offices Shanghai, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, Tokyo, and um, Toronto in Canada. And I spent four years of my life traveling around these different offices, just filming crazy videos to get people to, uh, to go to the events. It was great fun. All the travel exposed Mike to different aspects of business from around the world. He was also able to exercise his creativity, but something was missing. So in 2006, he made the decision to start his own production company, Trapdoor Productions. So I had been doing this for four years, as I said, and and it was great fun. But I realized, uh, you know, back to my vision of killing it, I wasn't really killing it. I was having a lot of fun and I was getting to know Asia and I was getting to know the world. But I certainly wasn't moving ahead financially. I'd come home and I'd spent all my money on the holidays in between traveling. And uh, everyone else is starting to get ahead and I'm not. So... 
I approached the uh, the founder of the company and I said, look, I'm thinking of starting my own thing. He wanted to do something in a little bit of a partnership and see what he could kick off. We ended up referring quite a few clients into it. And then because things changed on his end, he um, he went uh, down a different path and said, look, just run with it and make it happen. And so I started Trapdoor Productions in Sydney now, yeah, 2006, so uh, 14 years ago. And that was a great time for me to really learn about the video space. There weren't many agencies and uh, we all knew who each other was and you could start stuff. It wasn't as simple as it was to start a production company now, but it was probably the start of that. So not long after I got started, things like the 5D Mark II happened, which revolutionized the the video space for the average punter who could come in and say, well, now I've got a laptop and a DSLR and I can shoot content that looks as good as some of the professional studios. This is great. And so we started to get a lot of competition in that space very quickly, but it was a it was certainly a fascinating time for video. And a lot of companies that we were working with were still talking, oh, we need our five-year company DVD done. But there were some companies that were starting to go, oh, hang on, where else could we use video? Mike was making all kinds of videos for companies. Sometimes he'd make content for corporate DVDs, sometimes it was television commercials, and he was being creative about the content, making sure it was fun and interesting where possible. But running a production agency is hard. Trust me on that. You have to balance your internal desire to create with the need to constantly be talking to clients and keeping a pipeline of work. It makes it hard to have a great work-life balance. Uh, we were doing a fair bit of outreach as well. I was picking up my old Amway skills and picking up the phone and, and selling, uh, calling people, lining up coffees, just trying to get door openers wherever I could. The challenge for me was really the fact that as a producer-director, or sort of one-man band with a few other people helping out, I was always caught up in the work and couldn't sell. And then I'd be selling and then couldn't do the work. So it was quite a roller coaster. How did you manage that manage that balance? Because I'm sure there's, you know, plenty of other creatives that have that same kind of challenge. I didn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look, it was i I'd love to say there was some magic answer I can give to every creative on the balance, but it is a real struggle. And and it is um still to this day I know for uh entrepreneurs that are in um non scalable businesses, it is very difficult because people say, well, just put on a salesperson. You're like, okay, well, then I've got to do twice the amount of work to, to pay for the salesperson. And most salespeople don't perform in the first six months. So how do we do that? Uh, it was a real challenge. And now I'm in a business model that doesn't require that. But back then it was a very, um, it was a very tricky uh, sort of razor's edge. And I know quite a few creatives and graphic designers and whatnot that have gone back to just freelancing and they've, they've wound up their companies because they said, well, every time I had to sit down and do a creative piece of work, all that's running through my head was uh, sales calls I have to follow up on or the fact that my books still need to be done or that there's, you know, there's outstanding debt. And getting that correct marketing plan to scale something that is a service-based business is, is very, very difficult. I think that must be like one, like a big misconception about like creative businesses is that like things have to happen in like a nine to five kind of, kind of basis. Whereas like creatives sometimes just need the space to just chill and like do nothing. And then, you know, they hit their stride at a completely different schedule to everyone else in the business. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is one of those things that nighttime is the best time for me as well. I, I um, 
I unwind on the couch, watch a bit of Netflix, and then the light bulbs go on and, and my wife sort of laughs and off I go with a million ideas and things that I want to do. Uh, whereas during the day, often it is one of those just very, uh, you know, you've got the things you've got to get done, it's task-driven, and your brain's not ignited. It's not, uh, it's not firing the way it would when, you're, uh, when you've got that free time. Trapdoor Productions was doing well, but Mike kept running into a problem. Around 2012, social media had dominated the focus for companies looking to be relevant to younger audiences, and those social platforms were demanding more video content. But the companies didn't want to spend more money to get it. Mike's clients were pushing him to find a way to reduce his costs so they could do more with their video budget, and eventually he started taking notice. I was really fortunate to have some some great key clients that loved working with me and I loved working with them and they were very open on what they needed. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I've been quoted actually uh, in the press and, and this was one of my early days and now I'm going to go do it again, so here we go. But the, uh, the, the headline of the article was, Mike Pritchett, CEO, it took me two years to get my head out of my own ass, in quotation marks. I was like, as soon as I saw the article, I called the, the journalist back. I was like, thanks. And he just burst out laughing. I was like, he goes, you said it. I was like, I did say it. And now, yes, thank you. Uh, and the reason I said that quote is I had a client that was absolutely fantastic. Um, Susie Sarkis is her name. She uh, worked at a very large law firm and she constantly um, hounded me to create videos more quickly and more cost-effectively. And the reason it took me two years to get my head out of my own ass is I just thought she wanted a discount, right? She wanted a cheaper price, cheaper price. One day she sat me down and said, Mike, if I have this problem, other people have this problem. As an entrepreneur from way back and still frustrated with my life that nothing was scaling and I wasn't, in in quotation marks, killing it, I got thinking and, and light bulbs went off and it was almost like that worm farm moment again. I went home and I just couldn't sleep. I was like, oh, maybe they do. Let's look at the opportunity. How many companies are there? How could we do this? And, and I, I drove my wife crazy thinking of a million different ways that we could solve this problem. But for me, it was a, a very definitive moment that I was sitting on the beach with my wife. She's heavily pregnant. I'm realizing life has to change. You know, I was so frustrated with uh, my current position because I was trading time for money. I was busy doing the creative and then busy doing the selling and then busy doing the work. And then, you know, and, and I'd be on shoots and people would call me about an opportunity. I'm like trying to take hold of that opportunity while trying to focus on directing a shoot. It was... It was really, really frustrating, as so many people know the pain. I've spoken to many people since then that have gone through the same thing. And so I said to my wife, I said, look, I'm going to change this. I'm going to start a new business and I'm going to address this market and everything I put into it is going to make it scale so that we can live the life we wanted to live and I can be the dad I want to be. And uh, and I actually said at that moment, I said, and I'm not going to work any more than four days a week ever again to which she looked at and went, good luck with that, but yes, let's try. Mike was used to doing high-end productions, the kind where you have a director of photography with multiple cameras and someone dedicated to sound and lighting. They were expensive to make and took time to pull together, but he still had to figure out a way to reduce costs. Now, I couldn't do it any cheaper. We did it well. We had multiple cameras. We had auto cues. We had all the gear. I had professional DOPs. We did it properly, right? And, And I was very proud of this, you know, almost like a chip on my shoulder. No, we do it properly, you know. And then you look at the output and where people are watching it on their iPhones and and you realize, hang on, do they even know what 
we did? Like, do they understand what went into this? Do they even care? You know, and so I said, okay, let's try something. We shot a really professional shoot and I said, okay, great. Let's do the same shoot. But what I'm going to do is give you a camera, a fairly basic setup. Um, but we're going to jazz it up with a few bits and pieces and adjust things. And we ended up building our own auto queue and other bits and pieces to make it work. But we provided that to the client and trained the receptionist to shoot content. And I sort of said, this is never going to work. Let's watch this. And what came back shocked me. It really shocked me. And then what we did in post and what we realized we could do in post uh, shocked me as well. And we came out the other side with a result that was within 10%. And the client thought it was exactly the same. Mike initially put his clients on a subscription model. He'd give them a camera kit, they'd film the video themselves, and then they'd put the files into Dropbox, where his team would pick them up and start doing the editing. Although it didn't take long before he realised he needed a platform more specialised than Dropbox to manage all of this. So he teamed up with one of his best friends, Tim Moylan. Tim could bring the technical skills to build the platform, and in a few months, Shootster was born. In 2014, they launched the first version of their management platform, The Hub, and continued to add features based on the needs of their clients. Yeah, we had a beta version of The Hub out within the first three and a half months. It was pretty quick. Uh, We actually went through the AWS incubator program, and I learned today it was only 15 grand worth of credit that they gave us, and I, I looked at Tim today when he told me that, and I said... Really? Wow, we did a lot with 15 grand compared to what we do these days. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's the joy of scale. Can't seem to buy the team yes. lunch for 15 grand. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those annoying things. Uh, but we did a lot. We were really scrappy. We just got in there and made it happen. Um, gave our clients exactly what they wanted at the time. And then, of course, you know, they go, could it have this? And could it have that? And could we do this? And what about hosting? And what about tagging? And what about image search recognition within the platform? And what if we could do all of these what if we had a video builder in there we could build certain videos ourselves and what about inspirations like all these extra stuff that um you know over time you go okay yeah sure and then suddenly you're like wow i have a big development team now and we're we're cracking on with this so it's exciting but i think that's the way you need to evolve as a business is is doing exactly what your clients are asking for and like what was your what was your pitch to clients to try and get them on board with allocating money towards your software as opposed to, you know, the money that they're already investing in their like traditional agencies, etc. It's really interesting. I, I think as a as a entrepreneur, a great test is to give your elevator pitch to someone who's in the industry who you believe needs your product and see what happens. If they have a confused look on their face at the end of it. Try and find another product. <laughs> Try and find something else. <laughs> You're probably not on track. Um, I have delivered our elevator pitch around the world thousands of times, and I don't know why it translates to the same word every time, everywhere we go, but 95% of the time, the word is, wow. And they stop and think about it, and then some of them come back with, wow, that's okay, that's genius, okay, how can I use that? Or, oh, I wish I had you in my previous job or comments like, where have you been all my life? But very rarely, in fact, almost never does somebody just move on to the next conversation or say, oh, so what? how's that work? Why would I need that? And, and so as an entrepreneur, I think that's where you know you've hit your sweet spot. And the beauty of our product, it was, it was developed by the client. It wasn't something, I can't take the credit for coming up with the idea. The clients hit me and pushed me and pushed me. 
I can take the credit for being flexible enough, open enough and listening to move on it, but not to come up with the idea. And I think that is why when you say, how did we go about convincing clients to move their budget? We didn't. We just said, why are you spending so much over there? Look at this. And after this break, how Schuster's promise of a 24-hour turnaround helped lead the company to global success. Welcome back to Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Mike and Tim had figured out a model and a platform for a subscription-based business. They were changing the way video production worked and democratising the creation process. And at one point, Mike had this crazy idea, offering a 24- or 48-hour turnaround on video content. This was unheard of in the industry at the time because most companies needed to fit the editing and post-production into their workflow. That move really set Shootster apart from other providers, especially in a world where clients wanted their videos produced quickly. I remember actually sitting in a boardroom in Surrey Hills and we had this advisor that I was working with and Tim was there and I walked in that morning and I said, oh, I've got an idea. And they said, oh, what's that? And I said, let's offer these back in 24 hours. And they both looked at me like, you're a complete idiot. <laughs> I said, why would you do that? And I said, because no one else is. And we can. And it sounds exciting. And they said, yeah, but does it need to be 24 hours? Why don't we make it you know, in the next couple of days or 48 hours or whatever? And I, I made this joke. I said, do you know why the I quit sugar diet was so popular? And they were like, oh, here we go. Why? And I said, well, it wasn't the I moderately cut down on my sugar intake diet. It was the I quit sugar. You know, it had a dramatic effect, right? And, and I said, no one quits sugar. You die if you quit sugar. But sure, let's pretend it's a thing. You know, and I said, let's be dramatic. Let's do something over the top. People are talking about video back in five days, four days, whatever. Let's do 24 hours and just stick to it. And we did, and it worked, and, and people loved it. Is it the most important SLA? Probably not. But for a lot of our clients, they do now need it in 24 hours. And now we have rush fees, and people can have it back in 12 or 6 sometimes. And that I never thought I'd see happen. But now we are we're having clients that absolutely need that video back in, in 6 hours or less. Schuster's clients loved the quick turnaround concept, and they were able to grow their client base. So they started scouting around for some investment. Mike had previously tried to sell Trapdoor Productions, and it was through some existing connections that he was able to find an investor, AdCorp, an advertising agency that invested in advertising and media businesses. They kicked in $1 million in funding for a 15% stake of the business. What happened for us is we... I changed, if I remember correctly, I changed my profile on LinkedIn to be director of Trapdoor Productions to CEO at Shootster and the next day get a call from the CEO of AdCorp saying what's this? And uh, I said well if you want to have a chat why don't you come down and have a look? He said I'd love to. So anyway he he turned up with his CFO as well and I thought that's odd why's your CFO here? Uh, Showed him through showed him what we were doing and literally over coffee he said right we want in. I said Okay, uh, interesting. <laughs> so uh, that that went um, really well. It took a while. Still, these things take time, and uh, they're never never easy. And it's super frustrating for an entrepreneur that just wants to throw everything at it and get going. But they've been a great partner, and they've actually um, you know doubled down on that and pushed with us further. And and 
now as we're growing out more and more globally, it's been a, a fantastic opportunity for them and uh, and for us to partner with them. Did you have like an extensive client base in Shootstar at that time um, or were they more sold on the vision of what you were trying to create? They were sold on the vision. In, in hindsight, yeah, we thought we had an extensive client base, but the reality is we didn't. Uh, we were still building it up and uh, and they were sold on the vision really of what we were doing. Uh, I was very... Uh, passionate about the the blue sky opportunity in the US and uh, UK and Asia. I can see now looking back why I probably looked delusional and why so many investors probably laughed and walked away. But hey, if um, any of them are around, I'd love to have a coffee with them over in Singapore sometime. How sort of quickly were you growing as a, as a business back then, sort of 2015, 2016? Oh, this is a good question. I wish I had exact numbers on me, but we're talking in the range of you know two hundred and fifty percent growth year on year, and uh, and that was just Australia, which, as we know, Australia is a very very small market, uh, twenty five million people versus the US, which is three hundred and twenty six million. So just dramatically different compared to the opportunity, I guess, that was in my head and the world that we were living in there in Sydney. AdCorp's funding allowed Shootster to focus on growth and expanding their platform. They continued to build out their client base, they got some new offices in Sydney, and everything was looking up in the Australian market. So in 2017, they started to expand globally. Mike and his family moved across to Singapore with a plan to open their first international office. So I came over here with the... um direct intention of hiring a certain individual and he he knew I was coming and had the direct intention to to hit me up for a job so that worked really well so <laughs> we uh we kicked um kicked Singapore off with uh Antoine Bouchacourt and he's our VP here in uh Singapore and for for Asia in general and so he was our first person on the ground over here and I basically said look I'll connect you up with a few people that I know they'll give you a long list of people to to go and connect but look, there's our PowerPoint presentation, go sell. And that was it. And then I came back a few months later and said, right, we'll probably need to hire a couple of people now. So yeah, let's do some interviews and hire those two. Great. And so brought two more team members on, which were fantastic. And then that sort of was the start of this little nucleus of Singapore, which has grown out across now Singapore and Hong Kong. And we're, we're, we're working on Tokyo right now as well. And, and these, this is, area has been very exciting for me, but I've known this area, so I've always known that I want to be back in Asia. And moving my wife here was a no-brainer. It makes so much sense for us as a global business to be based out of here. It's so easy to come in and out. For us, it was, a, it was an obvious launch pad. Then we we launched um, the UK, so my wife and I moved over there for three months while we kicked that off. We brought Baz on board in the UK. Uh, the US, we took uh, Chad, who was our first employee, uh, one of our first employees, at least in Sydney, and he was our head sales guy there. He's now running the whole of the US as VP for the US, and uh, that's just been a really great sort of uh, setup that I guess has fallen into our lap, the right people at the right time to expand those regions out. How are you selecting the locations that you wanted to expand to? We're very much in product and and location led by our clients. So all of our clients pretty much are large multinational clients. And as soon as a client says, 
hey, why aren't you in X? We say, well, do you want us there? And what would that mean for us to be there? And what can we do? And we speak to the teams there and see, is there actually a deal? Um, do you actually want us to be in London? Well, yeah, we do. Okay, well, what would that mean? And then we go and survey other clients. Who wants us to be in London? Well, lots. Okay, we're in London. Let's do this. Um, so for me, it's been a no-brainer to expand out globally. All of these regions are growing now. We're, we're in a cash flow positive position uh, in all uh, regions we're in, and we're able to build that uh, incrementally at the same time rather than sort of focusing solely on Australia, for example, and then waiting till we're hugely successful and trying to launch into another market, which, to be honest, I think is actually harder once you're bigger. Are there differences in the type of content that you're seeing companies produce in different markets? It's funny. There, there are differences in the content, and uh, we do see slight changes between the types of content that's being created. Um, definitely there's there's personality differences. You know, Asia, they create a very different type of content to Australia. But the, the thing that I've found very striking is the lack of difference. The fact that around the world, everyone has the exact same issue and everyone's trying to create content at scale and everyone is um, really looking for a different way to do it, but all have the same problems and all want to create the same type of videos, essentially. When I say type of videos, you know, that's internal comms, L&D, training videos are a no-brainer, social media videos, how do you scale that side of things is a real challenge in every country we've been to. Shootster now has offices right around the world, including Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong, the UK and the US, and they're continuing to open more locations as the business grows. Their team is now 132 people strong and they do all their post-production in-house dedicating individuals to the clients to help maintain quality and brand messaging. As someone that that came from doing a lot of high-end productions, what's some of the biggest misconceptions that you've had about the video production process? Yeah, it's very interesting. I I think technology's come a long way to help people as well. Like we can't ignore that. It it wouldn't be possible once again 10 years ago for people to be shooting the kind of content they are today. But what I've found is that I am not the person and you are probably not the person and and a lot of video professionals are not the people to be teaching people how to shoot video. We overcomplicate it like you wouldn't believe. You know, I I want somebody to know exactly what f-stop they're running on on this and why it's important and how you can get a better focus pull if you go from here to there and all you know like and then I want to I want to go down the intricate details of lighting and making sure everything's set up perfectly. But the reality is the average punter if if you were to sit down and train them with a lot of back knowledge on all of these intricacies you'd just confuse them. Whereas somebody who has a good knowledge and an understanding and is great at training can train somebody in a lot more of a an enjoyable fashion on how to shoot content. And the amount of things that are possible these days with the tech and the right understanding of framing, shot composition, lighting, uh, basic level in those and audio, of course, you can create some pretty amazing content these days without having to be a professional. And our, our training is eight hours in person. Uh, We also have a lot of online training and the online training as well. You could watch all of our videos on how to shoot content and be in a position to film a piece to camera video that looks great with great cutaways. It's about understanding what you're trying to help someone create. So if the message is speaking and the video is not distracting from the message, you've hit your mark. 
With a big global team, Mike says they rely a lot on video to help with internal communications. They also use tools like Slack to facilitate discussions. Shootster is also working on a new version of their hub and plan to build more scalability into their business. Mike wouldn't share too many details, but it'll be pretty exciting to see what comes of it. They're also working to raise a convertible note as they look to increase their scale. And part of this is because Mike says he's always looking several years ahead. Even though the company has been successful to this point and is largely built off profit, they have a lot more ambition to realise. When you look at everything that you've achieved thus far, how do you feel? Frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think it's, it's funny. I... And I think any entrepreneur would probably know this feeling. Uh, some people ask me, they go, oh, you must feel so excited that you've done all of these things. I, I, I almost don't feel like I've done anything yet. And I guess it's like asking a sprinter at about the 50 metre mark how he feels about his success. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm still sprinting. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, I hope that I'm ahead in the, in the sprint. It, look, any business, um, building it is hard. Building it is frustrating. There's so many more things that I am so close to getting out and, and, and achieving. And new markets, other things we want to do, the explosion of this business in the US, I can taste them. And I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, you live three to five years ahead of anyone else in the world. And, and that may sound really arrogant, but it is literally my brain is three years down the track. I'm not living in now. I'm not proud of having 132 staff. I'm not proud of our turnover. I'm not proud of the locations that we are in around the world because I'm three years down the track and frustrated that the world won't catch up. I joke around with my best mate, my co-founder, Tim. You know, We, we um, bought each other a bottle of champagne before we... Um, no, somebody bought us a bottle of champagne. I was just thinking, why did we buy a bottle of champagne? We don't drink champagne. Our wives do, though. Bought us a, a nice bottle of champagne when we raised a million dollars. And they said, ah, congratulations, you should have dinner with your wives and pop this bottle of champagne. We said, we will, we will, we'll, we'll do that for sure. Life got busy. We, we started doing things and we looked at each other and said, hey, that bottle of champagne, we'll take the wives out for a nice dinner. We'll pop, pop a bottle of champagne. When we do something we're really proud of. We still haven't popped that bottle of champagne, <laughs> and, and we keep doing things that we, you know, we are proud of and we are excited about. But they're not the end goal. They're not the big game. They're not the champagne popping moment for me yet. Uh, so we've kind of decided, okay, well, let's stick that to a listing or an exit or something ridiculously big. But I guess if we can't stop and celebrate those wins, then we really need to have someone slap us up the side of the face. But for now, we'll just keep sprinting. What's the biggest piece of advice that, that you could give to, to a creative looking to start a business now? What is success to you? And, and I would say everyone needs to define what that is, right, uh, for themselves. Success is something very different for each individual. If success for you is being a true creative and just being passionate about the project that you're working on and getting that project done in a way that fulfills all of your you know, creative desires and, and needs and, and the output is super high quality and incredible, um, you've got to chase that dream, right? And so asking the question, I guess, how do you be successful as a creative these days is a very different question to how do you be successful as an entrepreneur? Uh, and I think we've got to separate these things and not look across the fence at other people and say, oh, that person's done X, Y, Z, so I'm no longer successful because they're doing something 
that appears to be bigger and better. You know, I, I have definitely learned along the path of building Shootster that looking at other businesses and other people even doing exactly what I am doing in building a scalable business around the world, you, you do not know where that person is at. Success is about being on a journey to where you want to head and you've got to work that out as an individual, where, where that is that you want to be and what you want to be and what you're doing. Be careful what you wish for, I guess, and, and know what it is that you're wanting to do. For me, success to me was always on the entrepreneurial side of things. Video for me was a lot of fun. The work side of things, I love what I'm doing because I have a drive for building a business, but if you don't have that drive and you're not willing to bury yourself in Excel spreadsheets and enjoy it, I'd say enjoy the success of being a great creative. Thanks to Mike Pritchett from Shootster for joining me for this interview. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, editing and mixing by James Parkinson. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan, and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. If you value the conversations that you're hearing on this show, then I encourage you to jump into Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. We also have some great new Unicorn merch that you can purchase right now at podmerch.co. That's podmerch.co. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.